Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fuel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And welcome to it. Hey Jim, how you doing today, buddy? You know, I'm good. Uh, weekends are back. Weekends are back. Summer is back. Uh, I've been seeing some friends. I've been going out. I've been enjoying myself. It's been a good time, so I'm in great spirits. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well, honestly. Uh, as we record this, it is Father's Day. Yeah. And so I've just spent the weekend kind of doing a whole lot of not much. And uh, the family's making dinner for me tonight, and we had, like, hamburgers last night. And, I've been doing a whole uh, lot of not much, too, but I don't even have kids, so i got no excuse for that. <laughs> my, uh, my wife and kids got me this big old uh, steel... Uh, custom fabricated, laser cut and etched and everything signed for uh, the podcast that I can hang behind my desk. It's really, really neat. I'll put pictures up on the uh, on the Instagram later, but uh, I'm really stoked on that. It's really cool. So It is it's very been cool. A good, it's been a good weekend. Yeah. Um, but uh, like I said, it's like uh, 150,000 degrees outside, hotter than uh, Satan's taint, so... Yeah, you know, I've been reading about uh, how I still, Vegas is my second home, always will be. I've lived there a couple of times and probably will again at some point. But um, yeah, Vegas has been having a really hard time. I mean, the drought has been an issue out there for a while, and it's not getting better. Um, but the population is expanding, so it's just a problem that's going to continue to to get worse. Um but they also have been notching record temperatures uh, because as that town gets bigger, it expands its footprint and they pave more streets and concrete always soaks up and hangs on to heat. So it's just uh, Vegas is really turning into a, uh, a dust bowl and it's really a shame. Uh, I have mad love for that town and uh, the, the tourism industry has picked up again pretty sincerely uh, since uh, COVID is, is receding rapidly into the rearview mirror. Uh, but they're, they're having some problems right now, and I really hope they can sort them out because uh, that, that place really is my, my once and future home. Yeah, and my company tried to send me back out to New Mexico again. They were, t- they were talking about it. They were like, uh, it was like a decision between me and another coworker, and thankfully my other coworker got voluntold for it. <laughs> um, so I didn't have to go, but... Apparently the southwest is just experiencing alarming temperatures right now, and I would not yeah. want any part of it. I have friends and family in Phoenix, and uh, every other day they're they're putting up screenshots of their weather apps. And uh, my my <laughs> cousin Steph is in Phoenix, and she was uh, dealing with 117 degree temperatures the other day. So you know, basically, folks, we're all on a rocket sled to a climate change hell. So. Uh, we're all going to probably, regardless of whether or not I wind up ever moving to Vegas again, I'll, I'll probably still wind up back in the Midwest before the, uh, the bell rings and I get called up, because uh, we're going to probably, before the end of my life, have to consolidate to the breadbasket a little bit, where there's still water and arable land to grow crops on. <laughs> Maybe. It could very well be, but uh, that's depressing as shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I mean, hey, welcome to summer, everybody. I mean, that's just going to yeah. have to be a reality of... Of how things roll at this point. Climate so. change is here. Absolutely. Uh, we had a blast. We did our uh, our live podcast a few weeks ago. That was fantastic. and Really great uh, time. We, we had a really good time with all of those of you who decided to participate. And we're going to try and find a way to make it more accessible next time. So we can have even more participation. And we're going to start doing these things uh, less of a one-off and more like maybe once a month maybe even. Just yeah. so we can have that interaction with y'all. Because, I mean, it was a blast. We had a fun. It was a good time. Um, and like I said at the time, this was never meant to be a one-way conduit of communication. We want to hear from you guys. We want to uh, 
hear your pie recipes. We want to hear your thoughts. We want to hear your nerdery. We let our freak flags fly pretty hardcore on this show, so we always like it when you guys do the same thing. So whatever it is that you're into, let us know, and uh, you could either be uh, a guest on the show, or you could have your topic talked about, because uh, we really uh, we do this for you. So we want to know what you want to hear. Absolutely, and in that regard, you can hit us up on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash fuelyourfandom. Uh, you can hit us up in our Gmail, which is fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. Or at the backup Gmail, which is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. And of course, uh, the latest and greatest episode is always up at fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com, which is where we syndicate to other podcast distribution platforms like Stitcher, like iHeartRadio, like Spotify. Anywhere you can find podcasts, you will find us there. One little bit of news also. We talked a lot on that episode about uh, our, our potential charitable organization that we're setting up at this point. Uh, tentatively still titled uh, Fuel the Future. And uh, uh, to that end, I'm talking to a graphic designer right now about getting some of the initial uh, posters that will be hung in comic shops, uh, participating comic shops. So that's exciting. I also have uh, established a Venmo account for the Fuel Your Phantom podcast. And you can reach us on Venmo at fuel your fandom so go to venmo type in at fuel your fandom and that's how you can get a hold of us uh you can send us money uh, if you think that we're doing a great job you want to throw us a couple bucks uh, to cover production costs that's great you can send us money for pie recipe ingredients that's great too Mm, Uh, or if you're focused on doing the charitable work which that's what we really want to focus on you can send us that money on at Fuel Your Fandom at Venmo. And when you send that money, specify on the Venmo transaction what you're sending it to us for, just so we make sure it gets allocated to the right place. Uh, because we definitely want to set this up as a way to help the children. And I mean, and I'm excited. We're moving forward. It's going great. So, yeah. With all of that out of the way, we've decided instead of doing uh, our little news segments as standalone episodes where we build up these. Uh, incredible amount of news stories to talk about over the course of an hour, hour and a half. Uh, we decided to kind of integrate that into it uh, as a part of the show uh, at large so we don't have to sit on so much and wait for a dedicated episode. So, in that vein, welcome to another portion of The Nerd News Nexus. So, Jim, I know you've got some stuff you want to talk about. And we definitely want to get to that, but the biggest thing right now as we record, I don't know why this is news, but I'm going to say it anyway. A giant hubbub has been kicked up by the Harley Quinn animated series mm-hmm. on HBO Max. And when I say, we're talking internet breaking hubbub at this point. We Basically, are. <laughs> what happened is is uh, the writers of the Harley Quinn program came up with a scene for season three that they're in the production of right now where, okay, if for anyone who has uh, sensitive ears, you might want to uh, uh, tune out for about 30 seconds here. If you're but, listening uh, to this in the car with your kids, uh, plug their ears or hit your skip button. But basically, the gist of it is uh, there was a scene involving Batman going down on Catwoman uh, and performing oral sex. 
We're not going to beat around the bush. We're just going to get to it. <laughs> beat around the bush. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean. There's also an eating pussy joke in there somewhere because we are talking about Catwoman. But we don't want to get too graphic about it. Although I just did. You did. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, HBO Max kind of put the, the kibosh on that. DC Entertainment uh, put the kibosh on that. And the way they did that and the way they phrased it was so ridiculous because they said, no, you can't include that superheroes don't do that and i'm just i'm stunned i'm stunned at the implication that superheroes don't pleasure their women in whatever all of my heroes do i mean not for nothing but if i look up to you it's because you go down (laughs) but there's been this big uh stink and and Kaylee Cuco is just laughing all the way to the bank with this one. Of course, Kaylee Cuco being the uh, the voice of Harley Quinn uh, on this show. And so now we've got all these different people stepping in and saying, yes, they would. No, they wouldn't, you know. And uh, Val Kilmer is notorious to come forward going, yeah, they would. Yeah, they and, would. Uh, <laughs> um, and in fact, I had a, a graphic somebody made up that I thought was particularly funny. It showed all the different Batman actors. Yeah, and whether or not they would. And they had Adam West saying, absolutely not. And then they had uh, uh, <laughs> Michael Keaton saying no. Uh, and you had Val uh, uh, Kilmer saying yes. George Clooney saying, says he does, but he doesn't. <laughs> uh, Christian Bale doesn't, but expects you to do it for him. And then Ben Affleck says, of course, like it's his job. Uh-huh. And... <laughs> well, there's also a, a Gigli gobble gobble joke in there somewhere because now that he's back with uh, with Jennifer Lopez, right? And then Robert Pattinson says yes, but doesn't want to. <laughs> the the best take that I saw on it, I think I follow Pat Oswalt on Twitter, and, and Pat retweeted do. Ivan Cockrum, who is the son of Dave Cockrum, who any comic book geek will know was the creator of Nightcrawler and Storm. You can find this tweet at Ivan Cockrum's Twitter which is Santarchy, uh, I hope I'm saying that right, it's S-A-N-T-A-R-C-H-Y. And you should go and visit that, because uh, I'm going to read it here. Uh, Ivan said, Never did I imagine there being a right time to share this, but if there ever was, this is it. (laughs) These are from the final sketchbook of my dad, Dave Cockrum, creator of Nightcrawler and Storm. If anyone was wondering, does Nightcrawler eat pussy? The answer is yes. Hashtag Batman goes down. And he shared a couple of pictures of a very nude... Um, just pencil sketches, pencil and ink sketches of a very nude version of Storm and Nightcrawler, uh, where Nightcrawler is absolutely dropping on Storm. And uh, yeah, again, if you have kids, don't uh, don't go looking for that. But if you ever wonder what it would look like to uh, to see that picture, uh, you definitely need to go to that Twitter account and check it out. So yeah, apparently superheroes do, and they should. Everybody and they should. should. Everybody should. Don't be don't be such a bitch about it. All right. <laughs> All right. I think Batman would. That's just me. But anyways. You know, I I agree with you. I think uh, Batman might not, but Bruce Wayne definitely does. (laughs) He is a billionaire playboy after all, and I don't give a shit how much money he has. He's not going to be able to keep him coming around. Wayne Manor, that frequently, as often as he does, if he's not throwing a little something into the mix. So I'm I'm voting for it. Something's got Selena coming back for more, so. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Tail in the air. Um... So we got some other nerd news stuff to talk about. 
So we got Jamila Jamil, who was uh, the British Indian actress who played Tahani Al-Jamil on The Good Place, which is a fantastic show that I highly recommend if you have not seen it. And the less I tell you about it, the better. It's just a, uh, a greatly recommended show. You can check it out on Netflix if you want to see it. She has been cast as the villainous, the antagonist, Titania, in the She-Hulk series. I think it's a series. It might be a movie. I'm not really it's sure. A, no, it's a, it's a series for Disney+. It's Plus. a series. Yeah, it's a Disney Plus She-Hulk series. And uh, she's going to be playing Titania, who is a longtime uh, antagonist of, of the She-Hulk character. And things are going to get confusing on the set because Jamila Jamil, her, her, her first name and her last name are very similar. She's playing the character of Titania, and She-Hulk is being played by Tatiana Maslany. So we got Titania, Tatiana, and Jamila, and Jamil all like running around on the same set. So you better make sure your call sheet is spelled correctly if you're working on that show. For sure. And then I also heard a rumor that they were bringing Tim Roth's Abomination back. From the Ed Norton Incredible Hulk movie, so that's an interesting bit of trivia too. Yeah, especially um, with how hard that Disney's been going on on taking older properties that were kind of before the first Iron Man movie, and or, or even like things that were running concurrently, like we talked about uh, last week with Agents of Shield and Agent Carter uh, being retconned out of canon. So the fact that they're doing stuff like that, like you know, they brought Thunderbolt Ross back into the mix. They they're they're bringing uh, um, other characters back. It's 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 a really confusing time, but I think. You know, you, you kind of got to trust Marvel because they 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 rarely drop the ball. So I think they're going to probably do a, a, a fine job with whatever it is they have planned for that series. Absolutely. And She-Hulk was always played more for laughs, a bit more, I mean, not less so now in the comics, but uh, more so back in the day when she was originated, she was played more for laughs than the Hulk was because the Hulk had a tendency to get all serious and, and melodramatic and, you know, and, and we don't get that with She-Hulk. She's just really good-natured and... It's going to be fun to see what they do with it. So Definitely. And in more uh, Batman news, we uh, got some, some uh, photo leaks. Uh, they're bringing back the Michael Keaton, Bruce Wayne, and Batman, like we talked about on uh, the, 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 the live episode. Um, yep. Michael Keaton is coming back to play Bruce Wayne. Um, now, we don't know if he's going to be Batman yet, but, but he's definitely Bruce Wayne on the set of the Flash movie, the mm -hmm. Ezra Miller Flash movie. Um, so that's, that's interesting. Uh, and there, there were some photos leaked, and he, uh, you know, he's, he's older now. He's got silver hair, um, as anybody who's seen Michael Keaton in recent years knows. But he kind of is the, the apparently, once in future Batman. He, he, we talked about him quite a bit during the live episode. Uh, he's, he's getting a chance to come back and, and at least be Bruce Wayne again, maybe Batman. We shall see. We don't really know. We're going to have to wait and see what happens when the Flash movie drops. God knows when that's coming out, but we'll check it out for sure. And, you know, one of the cool things is is they always said that if they wanted to do a Batman Beyond movie, that they would want to use Keaton as Old Man Bruce. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be an excellent way to kind of set that universe up. If they were ever going to do a Batman Beyond movie, they could, sit, they could lay the groundwork with this Flash movie. Have it be an alternate universe. Have it be a multiversal thing or whatever they're doing with it. But set him up as Old Man Bruce and... We could start looking for our Terry McGinnis and, and set up that Batman Beyond universe. That'd be great. Yeah, I would watch the shit out of that. Absolutely. And the last thing we'll cover in the Nerd News Nexus here at the top of the show, uh, something we've touched on before, that Xbox, the folks at Microsoft who handle the Xbox arm of the Empire, uh, have kind of been moving away from prioritizing the hardware, which is kind of good, because I know, say, you're saving up for an Xbox Series X, but those things are still, almost a year later, in incredibly short That's supply. True. Yep, 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 yep. Um, 
you can't really find them. But like we've talked about previously, Xbox is moving away from being a hardware-driven platform, and thanks to Game Pass, is being more of a software-driven platform. Uh, Microsoft is really making their money on that subscription model. Uh, they always lose money on the consoles, as we pointed out a couple of uh, episodes ago. So right. uh, they're kind of moving away from that. And Phil Spencer, uh, this week, uh, who's head of Xbox over at Microsoft, announced that they're going to be coming out with an Xbox streaming stick. It's going to be like right. a, a Roku stick or a, a Chromecast. You can plug into the HDMI port on the back of your TV. And it will be a cloud streaming platform where, where you can pick up any Xbox controller. If you, It'll probably come with one. Uh, any Xbox controller, either that it's bundled with or that you can get at any retailer or order from Amazon or what have you, and you'll be able to essentially uh, use the streaming stick to play Xbox Live games and Xbox Game Pass games. Uh, it remains to be seen whether they're going to syndicate Xbox Series X content to that. Um, streaming sticks don't usually tend to have a whole lot of onboard storage except for user preferences, so they're probably not going to have uh, the capacity to be able to actually store the games uh, in solid state like the Xbox Series X does, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if, if they just stream the uh, the Game Pass stuff or if they have most of the Xbox content available, but that could be a nice stopgap for folks who maybe aren't necessarily into the hardcore stuff who just want to kind of play some games, and you can plug that bad boy into the back of your TV and pull out your controller and, and have access to at least a portion of the Xbox library, so in case you're still trying to get your hands on a Series X, that uh, that could be a nice way to bridge that gap a little bit. And I think it's funny because everything that's pointing towards this project is pointing to it being a great success. Xbox Game Pass has been such a huge streaming success. It really has. Uh, they are succeeding in a market where Google tried, and I think Google failed, with Stadia. Yeah, um, and even before Stadia, the OnLive platform, which was the, one of the first uh, commercially available streaming consoles, uh, really right. just kind of uh, they launched and, and tanked right away. So. It'll be interesting to see if, if the branding can carry them and the fact that Game Pass has been so popular. Uh, hopefully that'll move some hardware for them that, uh, that isn't Xboxes or is to some diminished capacity, whatever you got. And then a funny little addition to that, they also announced another piece of hardware, uh, the Xbox Series X Mini Fridge. It looks just <laughs> like the Series X. Yeah. It's like green inside and lights up green and everything like that. And it's like... I saw it on TV, and I'm like, told my wife, I said, hey, I need that for Christmas. She's like, why? And I'm like, I honestly don't know. I just, because I just need the, it. It's the schoolyard pusher model. You know, I've bought into the platform. They, they got me hooked, and now anything they put out is something I'm going to have to pick up. Hook or crook, no matter what it is, just because I, I they got me. You know, the hook's in my cheek, and they've been reeling me in for years, and I'm nowhere closer to the boat or the pier, but God love them. You know, they put out a piece of shit, and I have to have it. Yeah, Danny's starting to really get uh, my wife, Daniela. She's starting to get very uh, uh, leery every time there's like an E3 or a mm -hmm. or a, a Nintendo uh, Direct or anything like that. Because every time something like that happens, uh, it's more money out of my pocket. Like they just did a Nintendo Direct where they announced a new version of Skyward Sword mm -hmm. uh, to celebrate Link's uh, or Legend of Zelda's 35th anniversary, and then they also announced uh, just like the Mario game and watch that they had. Uh, release for Mario's anniversary. They're going to release a, a Legend of Zelda Game & Watch that comes uh, loaded with Legend of Zelda 1, Legend of Zelda 2, um, Link's Awakening from the original Game Boy version, and then uh, some Game & Watch game. I, I forget what that one was called, but, I mean, it's just really cool. 50 bucks. I'm like, yeah, they already got me. I'm going to be pre-ordering that. 
Yeah, and I'm super so. excited about Breath of the Wild too because, to be honest, I've got the PS5 and the Series X and the Switch, and the Switch is probably the one that I play the least of the three. Um, I tend to be a uh, park my ass in front of the TV kind of gamer, so the portability of the Switch is something I really haven't. I've used it here and there, but it's not uh, like they want you to do it in the ads where you just kind of chuck it in your bag and take your games on the go. It's not really how I use the console. I leave it docked most of the time. Uh, but I also really am not probably the target demographic of the Switch. I got it because I wanted it because there were a couple games on it I wanted to check out. But uh, I, I, uh, I played... Um, I played Breath of the Wild, so Breath of the Wild 2 I'm super excited for. It looks fantastic. I really, really enjoy Breath of the Wild. And I played uh, Super Mario Odyssey, because uh, you have to. It's just a prerequisite if you're a gamer at all, that game. Even if you're a hardcore gamer and, and you know, play shit like Dark Souls or Sandboxes, uh, and you, you turn up your nose at, like, you know, the, the cartoony, fun, brightly colored stuff that, 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 that hangs out in the Mario world. It was a fantastic game. It really was a, yeah. a dynamite game. It was a great representation of that character but those are really the only two games that i played on the switch because every time i go to the store i kind of you know shuffle around looking for something uh, that, that that might appeal to me and there's a whole lot of reissues of older games which is fine if you're into the nostalgia thing and i am but i have a lot of those games already in other platforms so i don't pick them up um there's a whole lot of like pixel art side-scrolling platformers which i enjoyed when they were first out in the 80s and I still enjoy quite a few of those games now, but I don't play too many new ones. And then there's just tons of fucking shovelware aimed at kids. And I'm not denigrating the Switch at all. It is a fantastic console. It is incredibly uh, handy to have. It's, it's, there's some great games on it. I'm not sneezing at that. There are just not games for me. I, I tend to right. gravitate towards open world stuff. Um action kind of things and the 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 switch just apart from some of the first party stuff like breath of the wild and super mario odyssey there's just not it seems like it kind of seems like remember the days when you used to go and buy an actual nes cartridge and it had the big nintendo seal of approval the gold burst graphic on the outside of the box so you knew that nintendo had checked it out and made sure that it was uh, enough of a, a good quality that that you could plug it into your, your console and it would play and it would be a good game. Seems like they don't have that anymore. It really seems like that Nintendo will let any Tom, Dick, or Harry with a piece of side-scrolling pixel art shovelware into the store. So anytime I go looking at the uh, the, the Switch Online store, I just I, I wind up wading through uh, just tons of, of what looks like garbage. And I'll pull things up and look at screenshots or watch little demo videos or trailers or whatever. And it's just, I, I think I found maybe three or four games on that thing that, that even remotely appealed to me and one of them I bought and instantly hated and then there it sits on the on the card. So, you know, again, not sneezing at the Switch. I love Nintendo. Uh, Nintendo, they made a great console. Uh, I just really wish they would they, they had the time, the resources, and the, the desire to make more first-party stuff because their first-party stuff is fucking unbelievable. It's just knock it out of the park fantastic. Breath of the Wild, amazing. Super Mario Odyssey, great. Must plays. But those are the only two games I've really played on the Switch that I actually enjoyed. So that's a bitch. But, you know, whatever. Uh, that's I my think Switch they, bitch. They got, they got <laughs> the Switch bitch. Jim's Switch bitch. Uh, they've got, uh, also they announced a new uh, Metroid game coming out, a side-scrolling Metroid game that's not that first-party Prime version. And some people are going to be upset that it's not the Prime style. People like me, I'm super stoked for it because there was nothing funner back in the day than a just super complicated side-scrolling adventure that you have in these old Metroid games. And and, and it's like they're still NES hard and, and they're fantastic. Yeah. And, uh, and they announced that one, Metroid Dread, coming out for uh, uh, the Switch around October. 
So I'll probably pick that well. one up. You know, that might be the third game that I actually enjoy. And, I, you know, <laughs> I'm kind of bagging on the side-scrolling stuff a little bit. But Metroid has enough career goodwill built up with me over the uh, the course of that franchise that that I'll, I'll definitely grab that. It does look fantastic. And, I mean, yeah, you're right. The If you say to somebody who's a gamer that this game is a Metroidvania, they know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, it was a genre-defying and really genre-establishing title. It was, yeah, hard yeah. as shit. But, um you know, if you say to somebody that that's what that's the style of game, they know exactly what you're talking about. That's how how much it established an identity that still persists to this day. Exactly that. So that was our episode's nerd news nexus. Thank you for uh, accommodating us with that. Uh, so, kind of the meat and potatoes of what I really want to get into today. Now, this is uh, any one of you who've clicked on this episode have read the title. You know what this is about. This is going to be about. Uh, celebrities that we've lost. Uh, this is a, a two-parter episode, the second part of two. And uh, this is basically us talking about celebrities who have passed on, that have left an impact on our lives. And uh, we had a really great discussion uh, talking about uh, celebrities last time. And, and we just knew that there was too many uh, to really do any kind of justice to in, in a one-episode format. So we kind of saved some of the better ones for last and and we really want to and that's not to denigrate any of the ones we talked about of course not prince and and like uh, princess leia herself general organa our dear uh, carrie fisher uh, that's not to denigrate any of them it's just a matter of uh, the impact that they had on our lives particularly and so what we're going to do is we're going to take a real short break uh, and when we come back we're going to talk about uh, some more celebrity passings that have left a, a, a divot, a dent, uh, a crater in our lives uh, with their passings. So stick around. Hi everybody, welcome back. So now we're going to be talking about uh, some celebrity deaths that have kind of left us uh, grieving, I guess, and, and feeling their loss. And uh, for whatever reason, whether or not they were just, you know, particular favorites of ours or just stunning human beings in general, as some of these people are, uh, it's just their losses are most keenly felt. And, and like I said, this isn't in any kind of particular order. It's not ranked. Uh, as compared to last episode, it's not ranked to those people either. Every one of these deaths is a similar kind of uh, impact and a feel to us. So, uh, but we didn't want to make we wanted to make sure we didn't go without mentioning these guys too because, I mean, they're very very important to us. And, and the first one we want to talk about is uh, uh, Bob Ross, creator of the joy of painting. Uh, Bob was born in. Uh, October 1942 and passed away at the age of 52 in July of 1995 and uh, just a more wholesome dude I don't think you're ever going to meet that guy was just I mean I, I, I used to watch his videos just to get that calm that piece of calm you know yeah that guy was just you know if you were having a bad day if you're having some anxiety if you were having a 
you know, a rough go of things. You could just turn on some Bob Ross in between the the calming voice and the uh, the really beautiful things that he talked about while he was painting, plus just the actual just watching him create order from chaos. I mean, the guy was a magician. You could see him start with a blank canvas at the beginning of every episode, and over the course of a half an hour, he would and you would he would even lay stuff down. Like he would start painting down base coats and start putting in like sky things or water things, and he would do those real early. He understood how to build up a painting in layers in a way that that really nobody really has before or since. And there were several times when I would watch him do things, and I would think to myself, what the hell, how's that going to fit into the paint? How's he going to make that work with the overall composition? And somehow, over the course of an episode, that guy just worked magic. He he didn't have a wand, he had a brush. And uh, so he just made magic with with, with, with that canvas. And and he did it all in a way that just kind of uh, was more effective than an after-work drink or... Or even smoking a joint just to kind of get you down and, and, and calm you calm you down and and and, uh, and bliss you out while you're just watching him. It was, I mean, he was he was visual Prozac in a way. I was gonna say Quaaludes, Jesus, yeah, same thing. Uh-huh. Just an instant mellow, and, and you just kind of relax and feel the tension melt away watching him, and and his his just his the way he referred to life and as ha- there's no mistakes, just happy little accidents, and he always kind of. Uh, found a way to make something out of something that didn't maybe go as intended. Uh, it's something like, I think it's a message that can apply to a lot of things that we deal with in real life, too. It's like life's going to throw a bunch of shit at you, and how we deal with those things is how we move forward from it. And we can treat it like soul-shattering, earth-destroying mistakes, or we can look at it as a way to build and, and a way to grow. And, and that's certainly the methodology that... Uh, that Bob Ross used in, and it was a very wholesome, healthy dude, and and it was just fun to watch. But uh, we lost him, like I said, in July '95, um, at the age of 52 from complications to lymphoma, and that he was a he was a smoker his entire life, and uh, he kind of expected that he was going to die young, but I mean, he had some health problems associated with smoking and cancer and um he kept his diagnosis a secret from the general public um we've we've sensed kind of a pattern with that when we talked about like freddie mercury and everything else Mm -hmm. too but uh it was not known outside of his circle of family and friends until after his death and so whether or not that was uh, like in freddie's case he didn't want it to get in the way of uh, the public's perception of him and his art and what he did and or, or if there was another reasoning behind it, but yeah, uh, so his death came as a true holy shit surprise. You know what I mean? Yeah, and uh, he was just—he was just such a beautiful guy. I mean, you're right; he was a beautiful guy, but his his death kind of came out of nowhere. But um, he he definitely did have his share of tragedy. Um, there's a famous story, and uh, when he he lost his wife a couple years before he passed, and he just he never missed a day of work. He went into work and he shot his, his episodes, but he the only reference he ever made to it on screen, because he didn't want to make his audience sad, because he knew that they tuned in to, to feel a little bit of calm and to see some beauty happen right in front of their very eyes in real time. But he was creating a painting, and uh, he was putting some contrast in this one, a little bit darker colors than he usually would. And he said, uh, you know, he said this out loud to the camera. It's the only reference he ever made to the passing of his wife. He said, you got to have opposites, dark and light, light and dark in painting. It's like in life. You got to have a little sadness once in a while so you know when the good times come. And I'm waiting on the good times now. 
Oh. And we lost him a couple years later. Heartbreaking. So, Heartbreaking. Yeah. He just he looked right into the camera and, and addressed the loss of his wife uh, in a very straightforward way that, that he could just tie back to his art. And uh, that's just the kind of guy he was, you know. And he adopted stray animals. He was involved in, in animal rescue. And just one of those guys that you never hear a single solitary bad thing about ever. And uh, he brought so much happiness to so many people and created some beautiful paintings. And there's just... You, you get a, once in a lifetime you get a guy that comes along like Bob Ross that just brings just just does nothing but bring light to people's lives, right? And and that's going to be a recurring theme with a lot of the choices for today's episodes. This is uh, uh, the kind of the people that we picked for today's episode have that kind of uh, uh, spin, that kind of uh, feeling to for people. And and I and I apologize if I'm repeating myself a lot. It's just. You get kind of in your feelings when you talk about these kind of things. It's 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 very dramatic. So, uh, Bob Ross, you know, we loved you, man. You were you were amazing. Absolutely. Uh, the next the next one I wanted to talk about, and we lost this guy, uh, uh, March of nineteen ninety four, and and he's a bit more of a controversial figure in a way because he's a bit more crass and. Uh, he's a comedian, and, and, and he was definitely uh, a bit more edgy, but not really. I mean, and, and of course, I'm talking about John Candy. Uh, yeah. John John Candy was born in October, Halloween, 1950, and uh, we lost him in March 4th, 1994. Uh, Canadian-American actor, of course, uh, famous uh, most notably for things like uh, Stripes and Splash, Cool Runnings. Uh, Spaceballs, Uncle Buck, I mean, Jesus, the list goes on. Plane trains and automobiles, Home Alone. Uh, great outdoors. Oh, God, oh, great outdoors. What a career. What a career that guy had. Just making people laugh and just being good-natured and funny. And even just not being too big to do one-off things, like being the guy, oh, I'm sorry, folks, park's closed. Moose Hot Front should have told you in, uh, in, in National <laughs> Lampoon's Vacation. I mean, he was just That's an absolute one of my favorite gift. appearances. That's yeah. one of my absolute favorites. He got only a couple of minutes of screen time, only a little bit, only a couple of lines, but I mean, that guy was just so magical. He was the best thing about anything he was in. He could show up for a couple of lines and, and, and turn it into a, a, a show-stealing role. And, of course, he was a member of the uh, uh, Second City Comedy Troupe in Toronto um, back in the 1970s, and, uh, and then that moved him into running around with uh, the likes of... Uh, Oh, Dan Aykroyd and... Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara and some folks who are still comedy greats. Absolutely. And, I mean, and he was big. He was one of the bigs. And uh, it's just... That one hit me really hard. And, and, I mean, and he worked all the way up until his death. I mean, he worked... Like, I want to say he was, like, died on set, didn't he? Uh, I'm, I'm looking that up right now, actually. Uh, he died on March 4th, 1994. Cause of death was listed as a heart attack at 43 years old. Now, of course, nobody's surprised. Uh, John Candy was kind of a big dude. And, yeah. And, and so, I mean, and he, he this was before we had uh, keto diets and, you know, all this shit. And so, I mean, he was a, a hard-drinking, hard-eating, hard-smoking kind of guy. I mean, that's just the kind of guy he was. Or at least that's the kind of guy he portrayed. Uh, but he, he kind of... Uh, uh, binge eating and things like that. He kind of pushed himself over three bills and just kind of... Uh, he just was a huge risk factor for heart attacks. And uh, But 42 years old. I mean, for him to have made that many 
incredible genre-defining movies uh, before the age of 42, just to leave a legacy like that. I mean, it's it's a horrible thing to think about, but but uh, you can still watch John Candy movies and laugh. I mean, it's they're completely timeless, and, and he was just a fantastic actor and just didn't want to do anything in his life but make people laugh. And mission accomplished. Yeah, yeah and like you said, he pops up in all sorts of shit. Like, I mean, these are all title movies we talked about, movies that air his starring vehicles but then you get things like you said with uh with vacation or with uh, or home alone where he, he's just got that sort of pivotal role picking Catherine o'hara up from the airport yeah and so uh, just love the guy it was yep. very very early and, and of course a lot of people compare him to uh, how we lost uh, chris farley as well yep and a lot of the circumstances of course the weight factor and the drug factor and the alcohol and the eating and i mean that all of course kind of mirrored itself and 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 the same thing with john belushi as well when we lost belushi um a lot of those kind of deaths because they floated in the same circles the saturday night lives and the, the saturday night lives or the 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 groundlings or the second cities i mean we we definitely see them compared a lot and so 43 was far too young to lose uh, John Candy, like you said, he just wanted nothing but to make people laugh, and and he did. And boy, and he yeah, absolutely did, he ever. did. So, John Candy. All right, let's. Uh, we're gonna pick another one out here, and this one, this one's fairly recent, so it's kind of a recent poll. Uh, Jessica Walter. Yeah. Uh, Jessica Walter was born in January of 1941. And died in March of 2021, so just a few months ago. Uh, she was in over 170 films, television, or stage productions. But she's best known as uh, Lucille Bluth from the comedy Arrested Development. Uh, or the voice of Mallory Archer on the long-running FX series Archer. And that's probably what I have know her best for uh, as of recently. I mean, I watched... Uh, I, I watched Arrested Development back in its heyday, and, and I, you know, I've seen her in a bunch of other things, but really Archer is the only thing really with any kind of uh, staying power for me. It's what I've watched the most recently, I think, as far as just something I can sit down and binge. Archer's so been consistently was, hilarious since the jump, and she was a huge part of that. Huge the, part. The, the, the domineering mother that uh, Sterling, despite being the self-proclaimed world's greatest spy, always kind of lived in fear of, and she, you know... Even though he was, uh, he's kind of the classic idiot that just bumbles his way into success and manages to continually fail upwards, no matter what he does. Uh, she always had a way to bring him back down to earth, and he was always afraid of her, and she always got the one up on him. She's always smarter and better prepared than he was, and and uh, you know, there's a reason they called the show Archer and not Sterling or Mallory because it was obviously their spy agency, uh, and it was just as much her show as it was his. They were both Archer within the context of the show, and and. Uh, It'll be interesting and yet kind of sad to see how they continue without her because she had such a pivotal role in that in that show and was so fantastic at it. And then, of course, her pivotal role, like I said, as uh, Lucille Bluth in uh, in the Arrested Development show, uh, where she's just this hapless kind of uh, erudite woman who doesn't know how the younger half live, and she's become a meme. Uh, and one of my favorite memes was. Uh, when uh, they're talking about how the price of something and, and how people just don't know the price of things anymore. And uh, the, the line in the show was something to the effect of, uh, you know, oh, you need a banana or something. What's a banana cost? $10? Jeez, you know. 
Here, honey, have some money. Go see a Star War. <laughs> she just she just plays this hapless kind of out of out touch, of touch with rich reality. Lady. Yeah, and uh, you love it. And 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 of course, unlike the other two people we've talked about, she didn't die from any particular uh, disease or anything that has been pointed at. It's been uh, widely proclaimed she just died in her sleep. Yeah, at the age of eighty. And so sometimes people do get to live a full, rich life. And, and I don't want to say 80s, you know, full life, but... It's a nice long I mean, run. She, she had a good run. And I, I mean, if John Candy like died in his 40s right. and, and Bob Ross died in his 50s, you know, it's, it's still a tragic loss. It's still a horrible thing. But 80 years, a hell of a career. You can't take anything away from that. you gotta be, uh, you got to look at that with respect. You know, I forgot she was on Dinosaurs. <clears throat> Really? She was I didn't the know voice. That. She was the voice of Fran Sinclair, the wife on Dinosaurs. That's hysterical. I, I had forgotten that. that. I didn't know that. That's hilarious. Okay. Well, that's Jessica Walter. She's gone, uh, but certainly not forgotten. We're going to get into one more here before we take a break. Here now, this was one that you suggested, so I'm going to let you talk about it a little bit. Uh, Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Alan what a lovely Rickman. man! What an absolutely lovely man! And for being a a classically trained Shakespearean British actor, uh, this guy definitely had geek cred for days. I mean, not only uh, his his first significant role was uh, was was as Hans Gruber in the classic Christmas movie "Fight Me, uh, Die Hard." Um, <laughs> and my favorite acting moment with Alan Rickman was uh, in that film when they when they drop Hans Gruber off the Nakatomi Tower. Uh, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen a 30-year-old movie, um, then I guess you're kind of on your own. But I remember reading that uh, when, when McTiernan dropped him off of that tower, John McTiernan, the director of that movie, dropped him off of the tower, he said, okay, Alan, we're going to drop you on three. And then he said, one, and then let him go. So the look of absolute shock, terror, and surprise <laughs> on Alan Rickman's face is not acting. But no, uh, he's able to emote and, and drop. Um, but, you know, it, it, he had a, a, such a full career. And we can certainly talk about things like uh, like Love Actually. And we could talk about other films that he did. That were, but, I mean, in terms of, like, geek credibility, uh, the guy was um, Galaxy Quest. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're big Trek fans around here. Oh, man. And Galaxy, Galaxy Quest. Quest, along with, uh, I think, the, um, the Orville, is one of the best uh, non-Trek Trek properties. Um, Absolutely, and uh, he was, and also sci-fi cred aside, he's also in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, as uh, was it Marvin the Paranoid Android? Yeah, and, and he had the uh, perfect uh, droll delivery voice for that, and was just fantastic. Okay, so Alan Rickman played uh, Shakespearean actor Alexander Dane, who was playing science fiction character Doctor Lazarus, the ship's science officer, yeah. a known member of the Mahtar. An alien species known for their superior intelligence and psionic power, and of course, his famous line from from Galaxy Quest was, uh, "By Grabthar's hammer, you will be avenged." And, and I just the, loved the fact that Alan Rickman himself was a classically trained Shakespearean actor, playing a classically trained Shakespearean actor <laughs> who was playing an alien character, and he was sort of like the, the whole gist of the character was that he was not happy that with all of his training and all of his accomplishments and all of his his instruction and his, his prestige, he was playing this makeup role alien. Uh, he, he, <laughs> thought, he thought it was beneath him, and he, he, just the fact that he was... It's kind of like Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder, where he's a dude playing a dude disguised as another dude uh, wearing heavy makeup. 
the Shakespearean actor playing the Shakespearean actor playing the alien. Uh, it was just it was such a brilliant turn, and, and, and he was so perfect in that role uh, that it's just such a bummer that we'll never see him do anything like that again. And, of course, there's no possible way we could ever escape talking about Alan Rickman and what his contributions to geek culture were without acknowledging the fact that there was nobody that could have played Severus Snape in the Harry Potter films better, more effectively, or with as much compassion and range as Alan motherfucking Rickman. That guy was tremendous. Um, Absolutely. And, like, I mean, just looking down this, I mean, he's got 76 years old he died in, or 75, almost 76. And just looking down the list of accomplishments and the list of, of roles, I mean, Die Hard, Sheriff of Nottingham, and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, Metatron and under, Dogma, Metatron and Dogma, uh, Galaxy Quest, fucking Severus Snape, eighteen uh, Harry just, Potter films. It's just it's insane the amount of work that this man put out, Mr. and he's just Potter. he's so down to earth and just so cool. Like I, one of the stories that I like uh, hearing about was uh, they were talking about in one of the scenes that they were shooting for Harry Potter. And uh, they had Ron, uh, actor, uh, Rupert, Rupert Grint, Grint. Dr- yeah, drawing in his little notebook. Uh, he drew this doodle of uh, Alan Rickman and, like, didn't want him to see it because he didn't want to offend Alan Rickman. And Alan Rickman ended up seeing it and he kept it. And, and just things like that just endear him so much to anyone who's seen the characters that he plays. And, and I mean,. Wow, I mean, just I'm I'm tearing up thinking about it. Honestly, I really one of my am. favorite Alan Rickman stories has to be when Alan Rickman was cast to play Metatron in Dogma, and uh, Kevin Smith took Jason Mewes aside and he said, "Look, you know, you're my little stoner buddy, and I put you in movies, but you know what? You, you really need to bring your A game on this movie because I've cast some real actors. Like we got Alan Rickman <laughs> in this movie. This guy from Die Hard. This guy who was in Galaxy Quest. This guy, he's a real actor. And if you want to like not." You know, uh, to, to step in shit, you got to really, you got to up your game on this one. So apparently, Jay was not clean at that point. He was still using, but he pulled this shit together enough that he he memorized the entire script. So anytime anybody needed a line or anybody needed a foil or a line reading, Jason Mewes on the set of Dogma was right there and knew the entire script backwards and forwards by the time they started shooting. And Kevin Smith knew that he was kind of a lazy stoner fuck up at that point in his life, and he kind of pulled him aside and said. What the hell, dude? You, you, you're taking this really seriously. And, and apparently Jay Muse was like, yeah, I just didn't want to piss off that Rickman dude. <laughs> Alan Rickman made Jason Al- Muse step up his acting game on Dogma. And, of course, we lost Alan Rickman on uh, January 14, 2016. Uh, back in 2015, he'd suffered a minor stroke, which had led to a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Uh, and again, like we talked about, he only revealed that to close friends and family. So his death really kind of, for the for the layman, for the fan, just kind of came out of nowhere, yeah, and stunned. And just the body of work, the legacy that he left behind. Another guy you just never hear anything bad about. The kindness of that guy, the generosity as a co-star, the incredible performances he turned in. And of course, again, spoiler alert for Harry Potter, the duality of the character, the, the, the depth and complexity of the character of Severus Snape, both being like a Death Eater and a pseudo-antagonist, but always having you know love for Lily Potter in his heart and always kind of being put there at Hogwarts to ostensibly protect Harry. And you, know, you don't reveal that until far later in the book slash movies. So th- that guy... He was one of the few people that J.K. Rowling 
you know, problematic though she may be, she did entrust him with the full story well before she finished writing the books. Because kind of like George R. R. Martin, yeah, the, the Harry Potter movies were shooting before the last of the books were to come out, but Joe Rowling actually had the whole thing plotted out. She had notes. She had it all in her head. She knew where it was going. So she very early on entrusted Alan Rickman with the the uh, the fate of his character, so that he would know more accurately how to portray him as as a a sympathetic character under the surface, even if he was set up kind of like a bad guy. And he never said a word. He, he kept that to himself, but he used it to make his performance better. And that, to me, is just the mark of a performer that uh, that's the guy you want in that role. Absolutely. So, Alan Rickman, and, and just what an amazing actor. Just an amazing body of work. So we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we got a couple more we want to throw down for you. Uh, and, and hopefully you're sticking with us. I, I know this is kind of a deep, depressing topic, but, I mean, these people leave a legacy for a reason. These people are important for a reason. They're just beacons, and that's yep. kind of what we're trying to... We're trying to focus on the brightness that they shown uh, versus the dimness of their death. So uh, stick around. We'll be right back. All right, everybody, welcome back. So, Jim, I'm going to let you start this one. Uh, who do we got next? All right, next up we got Gene Wilder. Um, again, uh, just a guy, I don't think beloved is too strong a word. I mean, that guy, he was just a fantastic comedic actor. He had an amazing presence, flawless timing, and just uh, just a guy who was, who was just, he lit up the screen. Uh, the first time that I became aware of him, uh, it was before my time by quite a bit, but he played Leo Bloom. In the original producers, I think that was the first thing that I ever saw him in. I think I caught it as like an afternoon movie on syndicated UHF when I was a kid. Um, the producers, of course, was very famously remade years later with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. But this was the Zero Mustel and Leo and, and uh, excuse me, Gene Wilder version. He played Leo Bloom. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Every human alive knows Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, no, you got Blazing Saddles. You got Young Frankenstein. Oh yeah, ah God. Uh, I mean, Willy Wonka. He was so perfect yeah. in, in, in the Willy Wonka role as being kind of like menacing and sort of like mischievous, <laughs> but ultimately having the, the best interests of everybody at heart and uh, just the range of emotion so that guy showed. Think. And I, I remember hearing uh, when, they, when they shot that movie, he wanted to make a grand entrance and the, the, he didn't tell anybody who was going to do this, but when he limped out with his cane, uh, halfway through the movie, he didn't even show up until halfway through the movie. Let's, let's, let's not forget that as, as, as huge a presence as he was in Willy Wonka, uh, the whole first part of the movie was the golden tickets and setting up the characters and Charlie's poverty right. and all, Charlie and all Bucket, that. Charlie Bucket, yeah. Right. And then Gene Wilder shows up and he, when he made his entrance, he didn't tell anybody but the director what he was going to do. And he limps out with that cane, and then he plants the cane in a hole in the sidewalk, and then does a somersault and stands up. So again, kind of like when Alan Rickman got dropped off the Nakatomi Tower, all the reactions of all the kids just with shock and delight were completely real. And that's just the kind of thing he brought to his performance. And like you said, um, Blazing Saddles, a movie you can never make today. Never. Uh, but it, it exists as a, as a, as a, a wonderful relic of, of just a period comedy, absolutely hysterical. 
Um, Young Frankenstein, a classic. Mel Brooks, he's another one that's just... Uh, Mel Brooks is still with us, but, I mean, he made this movie, and it was it just... It's a classic for a reason. If you haven't seen it, you really got to check it out. But then, years later, um, he did a movie called The Frisco Kid, which was kind of like... It fell off the radar a little bit. It wasn't one of his more popular movies, but he starred in that uh, as, as a, uh, a frontier rabbi in the Wild West with Harrison Ford as a cowboy in the lead. And that's when you got to look up. That was actually 1979. And then, of course, he had a great run in the 80s doing movies with Richard Pryor. I had one called Stir Crazy, which was just hysterical. If you haven't seen it, you got to check it out. And then Seen No Evil. Seen No Evil, Evil, yeah. Where where Richard Pryor played a blind character and Gene Wilder played a hard-of-hearing deaf character. And between the two of them, they sort of like had to... To, to bumble through and it was it, I mean the guy his, his comedic timing and his screen presence were just second to none and he was just again just beloved for a reason and uh, dearly missed and you know uh, of course his love story with Gilda Radner was just you know tragic and timeless and and uh, just another guy who he just never did a bad thing in his entire career and you never hear a bad thing about him and you can still watch his movies and they still hold up perfectly and speaking of Mel Brooks, uh, Mel Brooks appeared on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon talking about, uh, right after uh, Gene died, and he's talking about his grief, stating that he, uh, quote, was such a dear friend, I expected that he would go, but when it happens, it's still tremendous. It's a big shock. I'm still reeling. No more Gene. He was such a wonderful part of my life. And again, as we talked about, this seems to be pa- a pattern here. Gene did not tell anybody about his diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in quote, uh, according to his Wikipedia page, it says the decision to wait until this time to disclose his condition wasn't vanity, but more so that the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not have to be then exposed to an adult referencing illness or trouble with causing delight to travel to worry, disappointment or confusion. He simply couldn't hear, or sorry, he simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. And that's just, if that doesn't speak to dude's character, I don't know what does. And like you said, he was in a lot of raunch. I mean, Blazing Saddles alone, like you said, could not, absolutely could not be made today. Not a chance. Problematic as hell. But, I mean, he left such a lasting legacy. And we had him for a good long time. He he, he was like 80-something when he died. 83 when he died. And, uh, of course, he was married uh, four different times. One of those times, of course, was to Gilda Radner, uh, another SNL standout, hilarious. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, she died in 89. But, I mean, just like you said, the way that he acted in in, in, uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and the way that he kind of carried himself in real life kind of impishly kind of uh you know like a troublemaker kind of like a like a a a well-meaning loki almost yeah just i mean he was able to embody all these different things and play all these different ways and just this purity of heart that just seemed to carry with him and that's what i'll remember with him so fantastic big loss big big loss and so uh, the next one we want to talk about is uh, uh, Patrick Swayze. Now, Patrick Swayze was born in 1952 and died in 2009. So, uh, 57 years old. 
uh, voted Time or People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive in 1991. Of course, known for his roles in things like oh, Roadhouse and uh, a Dirty Dancing and uh, Two Wong Ghost. Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar, Ghost. I mean, he was a singer, he was a dancer, he was kind of a renaissance man, like the, the yeah. Hugh Jackman of his time. The classic triple threat. Right. And just right. go look in his all get out, which, like, I mean, folks of my mom's generation who watched Dirty Dancing, who remember the, when the, the music was... Uh, was first out because uh, that soundtrack was super popular because it had a lot of great classic uh, you know, kind of oldies hits on it. And, um, you know, there were a lot of ladies who were in love with that guy because he just, he had great hair, he could dance, he was super suave. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, just a, a, a triple threat and a renaissance man and, and just a fantastic actor. And, and he just really kind of did those roles. It almost seemed like, you know, he chose the kind of like, uh, you know, externally uh, gruff bad boy but with a heart of gold. Um, whether he's teaching baby to dance or whether he's bouncing at a nightclub or whether he's, uh, you know, making, uh, some pottery behind Demi Moore and ghosts or whatever. I mean, I, the guy always I, brought I'll a vulnerability. Always, right. I always remember him as the older brother from, uh, the outsiders. Yeah. That was the first I mean, time a lot of people became aware of him was the outsiders and what a cast that movie had. Jesus. Yes. Packed with stars. And, and, and he died of course from cancer, uh, pneumonia, uh, was a complication from his chemotherapy for his cancer. He had uh, uh, metastasized to his liver. Apparently, he was a very, very heavy smoker, upwards of 60 cigarettes a day. Mm. And even throughout his uh, cancer tr- th- treatments, he was still smoking pretty heavily. And so, <sighs> I mean... Addiction is a bitch, kids. It, it, it is. And, and never let it be said that uh, your actions don't have consequences. This is not us standing on a soapbox. We all have our habits, but uh, just be aware. I mean, yeah. Uh, and Swayze was, of course. I mean, a wonderful actor. Uh, mm-hmm. He seemed like a wonderful guy. Uh, Point Break. That's another one I didn't want to forget. Point Break. Oh, fantastic movie. Right. And so, uh, yeah, Outsiders went eighty-three. By the way. Good long career on that guy. Fantastic. I don't think he ever really made a bad movie that I remember. Of course, nobody you know knocks it out of the park every time, and maybe the stuff that he did that wasn't so popular was stuff that was forgotten for a reason. But still, just a, a guy you never hear anything bad about. Just a hell of a body of work, uh, multi-talented, and just a huge loss for uh, for everybody. Absolutely, and so uh, Patrick Swayze, uh, uh, we lost him. So uh, next up, I want to talk about now. We got three left that I want to cover, and these three, like I said, these aren't all ranked in any kind of particular order. But these last three had a real severe super impact on my life, particularly. And their deaths were very, very keenly felt uh, by me. And I think you'll understand, uh, in particular, when we talk about them. But uh, the first I want to get into was uh, Fred Rogers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fred McFeely Rogers, born in 1928 and died in 2003. Most commonly known as Mr. Rogers. Uh, American television host, author, producer, and Presbyterian minister. Yep. Uh, now, again, anyone who knows me knows I'm not real keen on organized religion. That's just my thing. I'm not going to preach Ditto. or get, get all soapboxy. But uh, this man, you want, and, and one of the reasons, okay, we'll get into a little bit. One of the reasons that I don't really prescribe to any kind of particular organized religion is because you very rarely find a case where somebody 
walks the walk that they talk the talk. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, someone who, because uh, you get a lot of people talking out of one side of their mouth and then doing whatever, get caught in a, uh, uh, airport bathroom, look picking up kids or whatever the fuck else. I mean, you rarely ever find a guy that is exactly what he says he is, and that's what we got with Fred Rogers. I mean, yep. he he was Mister Rogers for God's sakes. I mean, I don't even think I really need to get into two. Uh, I mean, we've discussed the careers and everything else of all these other. Uh, Anybody people. who's a kid of a certain age grew up with Mister Rogers <clears throat> and had Fred Rogers. Setting an example for them of kindness, of compassion, of gentility, of just being a good person. And right. you hear stories about Fred Rogers, about he um, was, uh, I think he went to go to an award ceremony at one point, And his, uh, his driver uh, went to go drop him off. And uh, he said, uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll see you later. And the driver said, oh, no, I'm, I'm going to take you back. The PBS sent the car. I'm going to take you back. And he said, well, what are you going to do? The whole, well, i got to sit out here and wait for you. And he said... You're not going to sit here. Come on in. So he brought him in as his plus one to this award <laughs> ceremony and called him out during the show. And then after the show, he uh, said, well, you have kids. Why don't we drive by your house? And Mr. Rogers went by this dude's house, the driver of his limo, and came in and had dinner with the family and p- played piano for the kids and just, you know, changed those lives. Mm. And, of course, if you've seen the, uh, the, the, the biopic with Tom Hanks in the role of Mr. Rogers, you kind of know. I was just going to talk about that. Yeah, you sort of, like, that was all based on, on reality and true stories and and uh, you sort of see the compassion that this guy had. Not just, uh, you know, it wasn't just an act for the TV show. He didn't just, uh, like you said, he walked it. He didn't just he, preach it. He actually put his money where his mouth was, and he was a legitimately good person, uh, you know, even when the cameras were turned off. And, and that's something that you can really, you can, you, you gotta, he was who he was. He was exactly who you saw on the screen. He was, for better or worse, for all intents and purposes, Mr. Rogers, 24-7, and he just lived the example of his message. And of course, he died on February 27, 2003, one month shy of his 75th birthday uh, due to complications of stomach cancer. And just... I mean, you want to talk about a guy whose death sent ripples through... I mean, and it's not just a geek community. It's not just, like, one type of person or one type of demographic that he impacted this man truly left a mark on such a large swath of people i can't find anybody who hates fred rogers i can't no anybody who hates fred rogers is uh is a terrible person i'm gonna go ahead and say it's like jim henson another person that we should really mention as long as we're talking about this um jim henson is another one who just wanted to bring the world happiness who just wanted to to make the world smile by by bringing stories and 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 colorful uh, puppets. I mean, you know, he just... You can fairly judge a person by how they feel about Mr. Rogers, and you can fairly judge a person by how they feel about the Muppets. Jim Henson was another one that... He wasn't on our list, but I'm going to bring him up just sort of on the fly, because that guy, I absolutely loved, and still continue to love the Muppets to this day, and all their iterations, and all their different media. Uh, the absolutely. Muppets are amazing, and, it was, and Jim Henson was a big part of that. Uh, he just, you know, just wanted to bring people happiness, and he really very effectively did that. But and we lost know, back to him Fred and, Rogers for a minute. Well, we lost. I want to talk about uh, uh, Jim Henson real quick since you brought him up. We lost yeah. him in May of 1990. No, oh, wait, no. Yeah, we lost him in May of 1990 due to toxic shock syndrome caused by. Oh God, I can't even read all this. Some kind of bacterial infection. And uh, wow, just 
a stunning loss. And I, like I said, I know he wasn't uh, particularly on the list, and he should have been. But like I said, if we were to sit there and put everybody who deserves to be on this list, this would be a 10-part podcast. So Yeah. <laughs> um, Nobody would listen to 10 parts about uh, folks that, uh, that we've lost. But Fred Rogers, my favorite Fred Rogers story, apart from the, uh, the story about his chauffeur, uh, was when uh, PBS... The budget, the entire budget for, I think it might have been the entire budget for PBS, was on the chopping block, um, because they do get a lot of public funding from the government, they're a public TV station, uh, during the Nixon administration, during the Vietnam War. And Fred Rogers uh, himself, in order to defend against the budget cuts that were on the block, Fred Rogers went to go testify before the Senate Budget Subcommittee. As strange as that sounds, Mr. Rogers goes to Washington. And... He sat in front of John Pastor, who was the chairman of the subcommittee, the budget subcommittee in the Senate at that time during the Nixon administration. And uh, he just defended PBS and his show in particular, but he didn't, it wasn't about him. He went to defend PBS against these budget cuts. And this is what he said in Congress to, to the Senate subcommittee. He said, this is what I give. I give an expression of care every day to every child to help him realize that he is unique. I end the program by saying you've made this day a special day just by being you. There's no person in the world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And I feel that if we in public television can only make it clear that feelings are mentionable and manageable, we will have done a great service for mental health. I think that it's much more dramatic that two men can be working out their feelings of anger, much more dramatic than showing something of gunfire. He then recited the words, What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad you could bite. When the whole world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned the thing that's wrong and to be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop if I want to. Can stop when I wish. Can stop, stop any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this. And know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can someday be a lady, and a boy can someday be a man. And Pastor had never seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. He had no idea who the hell Mr. Rogers was. But in the few minutes that he had to testify before Congress, uh, John Pastor responded with, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days, he said. Looks like you just earned the $20 million. Nice. Fred Rogers single-handedly saved PBS by testifying before the Senate sub- Budget Subcommittee to defend against them cutting the PBS funding to put more news on PBS during the Vietnam War. Fred Rogers saved not only his show, but he saved the entire network by just being himself, speaking from the heart, and and it, it worked. It, it worked. It fucking worked. He went in front of the Senate and saved his, his entire network. And so his legacy, in addition to just being PBS... As a whole is his legacy. Just the the impact that he left on all of these children who not only got to learn, but who got to learn how to grow and how to be functional people and learn that they mattered and that they were important and that, uh, you know, yes, even you, if you feel like you're not important, here you are. You know, I like you just the way you are. That's such the an important message. lived and breathed and communicated a message of love, tolerance, acceptance, and, and brotherhood when those things were not at all fashionable. So, Fred Rogers, definitely we miss you, man. All right, a couple more. This next one, very recent. Hit me like a, a freight train. Stanley Martin Lieber, uh, or has better been known as Stan Lee. Comics great, uh, legendary comic book 
uh, creator and, and writer and just man about town. I mean, this was a guy who just embodied his work. Yeah. Uh, born in December of 1922, 1922 uh, died in November of 2018. Uh, producer, editor, publisher, writer, uh, Marvel Comics, multiple other companies. I mean, there's no geek culture without Stan Lee. And I don't Honestly. think I'm selling that very short. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, controversy surrounding Mr. Lee and, 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 and what... Uh, his contribution was versus you know Jack Kirby and his ongoing rivalry with Jack Kirby or or this that or the other thing. But I mean his his impact on not just the industry of comic books, not just the industry of film and television, but the industry of fandom as a whole is something that can't be sold short. I think no, you cannot underestimate that man's contribution to the pop culture in any way, shape, or form. The entire MCU. You know, again, like you can sort of break it down and and talk about how much he was responsible for versus Jack Kirby, but for better or for worse, Stan Lee was the face of Marvel Comics, and that's why, you know, like spotting the bunny on the cover of Playboy magazine, you go to the Marvel movie and you try and spot Stan Lee because you know he's going to be in there somewhere up until the point that he passed on. I want to say his last cameo was uh, reading the Mallrats script on the bus in Captain Marvel. I believe um, so, which was a particularly touching scene for uh, Kevin Smith. I know he talked yeah. about it. Uh, at length on his podcast and on his uh, uh, Facebook Live. and But that guy, uh, you know, in, in addition to being a creator behind some of your, most of your favorite uh, uh, comic book characters in the Marvel Universe, uh, he had gone on record several times, as again, being way ahead of his time with the, the, the acceptance thing, because the entire uh, idea for the X-Men came up as a metaphor for racism. In the 60s, you couldn't directly address racism because even more so then, it was a much more sensitive topic. Not that it isn't now, obviously, but, uh, you know, in in the the Civil Rights era, uh, Stan Lee, because he couldn't directly address a lot of the racism he saw happening around him, he decided to create a whole universe of people who were different. A whole group of people who were different in some way or another, but who still yearned for acceptance and just wanted to be uh, assimilate into society in a way that was fair and be treated fairly and to be seen for their similarities rather than their differences and that's been really the, the undercurrent that's driven every X-Men property ever since. The classic struggle between the, uh, the Charles Xavier's school and Magneto's uh, uh, mutant squad that, that they, they, they're the next evolution and they want to take over because they're homo superior and, and uh, um, humans are, are going the way of the dodo and it's our world, we just need to seize it and and so the whole undercurrent of, of that entire uh, family of comic books was just, hey, you know what? If you're somebody who opposes acceptance, then you probably need to get your head checked. And I kind of feel that same way. And I know I've posted about it online before where I've talked about, you know, if you're against the idea of uh, community and socialist type ideas and you can't have Star Trek, if you're against yeah. the idea of rebelling against an oppressive government you can't have star wars just like that if you're against the idea of everybody being equal everybody being free to be equal and who they are uh, then you can't have the x-men damn it you just don't get it you're obviously missing a key component here and i mean i say people missing those components i mean sure there's people who miss that shit and they can still get into it but uh, I mean, you're 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 selling yourself short. You're missing out on key elements that 
definitely color the story. So, yeah, Star Wars is anti-fascist. Captain America is anti-fascist. The X-Men are anti-racism. Uh, and really, yeah, if you if you and, and uh, Star Trek is 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 uh, a vision of of a utopian future where things like racial equality are 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 just a given and and people just accept each other and they they want to spread that message of acceptance throughout the galaxy. And if you don't understand these things, then those these properties are not for you. If you get something different out of them, if you can watch Star Trek and still be a fascist, if you can watch Marvel movies and and still think that. Uh, you know, uh, that, that Trump was a great president. You just, you missed the message. You really did. And again, we don't want to get super soapboxy here with this shit, but I mean, that was the intent of the creators. It's not even like we're saying anything that's, that's controversial. This was the express intent of the creators to make these things as a metaphor for dealing with societal issues. They couldn't take on directly because, you know, comics are for kids or they're supposed to be entertaining, but they built these societal themes into their comic books so that they could, uh, they could get those messages out and sort of like come at it sideways and uh, sort of subconsciously implant those ideas so that maybe the next time you were thinking about shouting a racial slur at somebody, you would think about the mutants you liked on the favorite comic book page that you read. Uh, the next time that you thought about maybe going to a rally and, and supporting some sort of fascist idea, you would think about the fact that Star Wars is completely anti-fascist and that's the entire message. Some people, there's no reaching them, but... It is not controversial at all to say that it was the express intent of these creators, whether it's George Lucas, whether it's Stan Lee, whether it's Gene Roddenberry, to build these messages into their entertainment so that people would maybe think twice before they went ahead and did something that they shouldn't do. I agree. And, and again, like I said, uh, it's, it's not necessarily us trying to be soapboxy or anything. It's definitely the intention of the artists. And, and we all know the kind of person Stan Lee put forth. Now, I'm not going to say we all knew the kind of person uh, Stan Lee was, because, I mean, there's obviously a lot of stuff that he kept hidden, that he kept on the DL, uh, like this big feud with Jack Kirby, Mm -hmm. um, which is problematic. And, of course, most people have problematic issues. I mean, no one's perfect, Fred Rogers, maybe, but um, uh, most people aren't perfect, we'll say. But, I mean, Stan definitely was there for his fans. Yep. He, he created these universes that allowed these messages of inclusion and acceptance to be uh, spread in a way that is, you know, fantastically entertaining. Mm-hmm. And, and I will always have a, a, a very warm uh, place in my heart for, for Stan Lee. So. Absolutely. Uh, we have one more we want to talk about. I, again, we, I know we've run long. We do that. But we want to make sure that we cover uh, the people that we kind of had a consensus on with ourselves that uh, meant the most to us. And, and, and their losses, of course, keenly felt in this last one. Uh, and for a lot of reasons. For a lot of reasons. Steve Irwin. Yeah. Steve Irwin was born in 1962, February 1962, and died in September of 2006. Uh, of course, Steve Irwin is the crocodile hunter. For those of us who uh, grew up watching his nature shows and um, watching him, you know, his conservation, his nature shows, the things that he was able to do, uh, I mean... He's, he's just amazing. He, 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 he definitely embodied this world protector kind of vibe. And a lot of people like South Park like to poke fun at him and, and talk about him just going out and fucking with nature. And, and uh, 
it was a kind of a bad rap for a while, but uh, well, because he did have such an over the top persona, he 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 was easy to court, sort of uh, uh, caricature on things like South Park, where it was you know you put a guy in a, in a uh, feathery hairdo and uh, khaki pants and say, "Oh, look, he's an ornery one. Check it out. I'm going to pull this thing out of the hole and poke it with a stick." I mean, it was without knowing who Steve Irwin was and sort of what his message was and what his underlying uh, principles of conservation and and uh, promoting the the sanctity of the animal kingdom as being just as vital as as, as the human empire. Um, <laughs> it's it's easy to sort of uh, characterize that guy as a, as a human cartoon because he he was so enthusiastic about what he did, but the more you learn about that guy, the more you really understand that it was really just that was painting him with too broad of a brush. He there's a lot of uh, a lot of stuff he did with his foundation behind the scenes and with the zoo and all kinds of things with his family that that maybe the uh, weren't immediately apparent to the naked eye, but uh, that guy was was just if if Stan Lee promoted the acceptance and tolerance of of people who weren't like you. Then, then Steve Irwin's entire raison d'etre, his, his whole main message was uh, just be kind to any living creature that you encounter because we all share this planet together and animals have just as much right to happiness and sanctity of life as you do. And just be aware that, that, that's, that that's a thing you should be aware of. Right, and of course Steve Irwin ran uh, uh, the, the zoo that his parents founded in Australia, north of Brisbane. They, they've the Australia Zoo with his wife Terry, and uh, their two kids, uh, Robert and Bindi, and uh, Bindi's been in the news a lot lately because she just welcomed her first child into the world, uh, what would have been uh, Steve's first grandchild, and it's a real bittersweet kind of thing, because, just you know, just from having watched this guy. For so many years, and the joy he got, and the joy he expressed, you could see uh, in that what kind of reaction he would have had to this first grandkid, and this, this. Uh, it's such a damn shame that we never get to see that. It really is too bad, and and of course, uh, Robert, his son, um, is really kind of like picked up the torch and run with it. And he, Bindi and Robert both, but uh, Robert has. Uh, he he's, he looks so much like his dad. And he sounds so much like his dad. Oh it's, my it's God. sort of he's he's really carrying on that legacy. I've seen him doing uh, talk show appearances with exotic animals. He's he's kind of uh, you know picked up the torch. He really has. Did from you see his the dad. one he's, where he where he chased Kevin Hart around uh, Fallon's? Uh, yes, I think it's Fallon. He's chasing Kevin Hart around with animals, and Kevin Hart's just freaking out and just can't control himself. And Robert's just being very calm and just trying to you know yeah. show these animals and. I mean, you it's, see these experts, these animal experts on talk shows like Dave Salmoni showing up with these exotic animals, and sometimes the hosts are pretty cool, sometimes the guests are pretty cool, but, uh, you know, some of these animals are, are pretty out there. They're very exotic, and some of them are a little antsy because they're not used to being under the hot lights in the studio, and they're outside their, their enclosure, and they're outside their uh, their preserve or whatever it is they live in. And uh, But, yeah, Robert Irwin has, has done a great job um, really continuing the work torch. that his dad started. Yeah. They all have. They all have. But, you know... Bindi and Robert and, and um, Terry have just done a fantastic job maintaining and preserving the legacy of, of his memory and carrying on his work. And uh, we all obviously wish that, they, that, that Steve was still around, uh, the three of them most of all, no doubt. But the fact that they can take uh, what happened uh, and just continue and, and turn what could have been a very tragic um, movement ending when, when the figurehead goes down and just turn it into something that, um, that continues... Uh, in a great way, I think you'd be very proud to see that. Absolutely, and and again, uh, these are like I said, these are not in any particular kind of order, but this is kind of like we have 
you know, Bob Ross and his message of peace, and you've got uh, Fred Rogers and his message of acceptance, and, you know, Stan Lee, same kind of thing, and then, of course, Steve Irwin is his message of just, we all share one beautiful earth, and we should be a part of it, and it's just, it's one of the things that got me was, I think it was Bindi that posted it on her Instagram. She posted a picture that someone had, uh, I don't know if it was a painting or if it was a Photoshop, but of her and her husband holding the new baby. And then Robert was in the picture and Terry was in the picture and they had put Steve in the picture too, with his big old smile and just this, uh, it made me cry. I'm not going to lie. I, I actually cried when I saw it. Yeah. And it was just... It, it makes you so wistful for what could have been. And that's a lot of what we talked about in these two episodes. And again, I know these are heavy episodes. We normally like to bullshit and be funny and, and happy and, and happy-go-lucky and you're righteously angry at nerd shit. And, and we'll definitely get back <laughs> to that. Trust me. That hasn't gone anywhere. But... For our sakes, we wanted to just talk about these people because these people left this indelible kind of mark on our lives and just, we're better people for knowing and having had them as part of our lives. We uh, really Carrie, are. Carrie Fisher and and fucking Prince and, and just Freddie Mercury and all and of Stan these Lee, people. Stan Lee, Steve Irwin, Stan, Bob Ross. Just, they've all left their imprint on not just us, but the world at large. And so we had to kind of do uh, a thing where we could just kind of memorialize them. So we want to kind of thank you for, for listening to us. We want to know uh, what celebrities left an imprint on you. Uh, who, who carried that mark for you? What, which celebrity passings have left the deepest crater in your life? We want to know. So let us know on our uh, Facebook page. Again, you can reach us at facebook.com forward slash feelyourfandom. You can send it to us in an email at uh, feelyourfandom at gmail.com. And our backup Gmail address, of course, is always fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That's where you can send show ideas, guest suggestions, especially if they're yourself, and pie recipes, and who knows? We get enough pie recipes, we'll open a little pastry bistro, a little Fuel Your Fandom pastry bistro, you never know. <laughs> um, but definitely send us that stuff. And uh, you can always hear the latest and greatest episode up at fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com and that's where we syndicate from so any of your favorite podcast platforms you can catch us on those iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts um, Winger, I just made that one up but you know, you never know <laughs> um, anywhere you get podcasts uh, you can yep. find us there and we hope you do absolutely and don't forget we want you to send us your suggestions for comic book shops that might be good places to run this uh, charitable foundation that we're putting together uh we're still in the early processes of it but we're gathering information and we can't do that without you so if you're hearing this here within the sound of my horrible voice i want you <laughs> to send me uh your local comic book shops information and we'll reach out and get in touch with them and and find out if they're a good fit for this uh, fuel your future uh program but if you'd like to make a donation to the fuel your future uh program Hit us up on uh, Venmo, which is at Fuel Your Fandom, all one word, and uh, let us uh, uh, give us a donation, send us a shout out on there, and uh, we'll make sure it gets to the right people. But other than that, we want to thank you for listening to the Fuel Your Fandom podcast once again, 
And please do remember, everything is fandom. And fandom is everything. Take care.